What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, you know, we got a lot of Trump stuff going on. I mean, I guess when have we not had a lot of Trump stuff going on for the last seven years or so? Uh, but just just before we started recording, uh, there's a new piece out saying basically that grand jury in Manhattan, they're not going to do anything for the next month. They're kind of off or I guess they're off, but they're hearing uh they're they're hearing evidence in another case or something like that. So all the day to day intense, you know, kind of court watch and everything, I guess, is off for you know the the the, the headline at first. I wasn't sure if they meant like for the next month, like the rest of the month, like i.e. two days, but I think they mean through April. Um, and and before that came out, uh, Trump himself was uh he was on you know the true social his his little his 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 lifestyle social network uh praising the grand jury like they finally seen the light they're they're legit all this kind of stuff so you know people um people get very into this this knowing kind of like i knew it there's never going to be an indictment i'm not going to fall for this again it's never going to happen. Nothing ever happens to him. Where, you know, this kind of self-vomping kind of thing. Um, look, this whole thing was basically spun up by Trump himself announcing this date. Uh, and before that, it did seem like there was reporting saying, you know, that they were kind of coming down to the wire, that they were, you know, moving towards an indictment. Um, and they've they've had a few more witnesses. I think the last thing was they had that guy David Packer, who used to be the uh, the you know the the head of I'm not sure he's the editor you know publisher owner whatever of the National Enquirer. Um, so look, he's going to get indicted for this, or he's not. It, it it's not some like perils of Pauline kind of like up and down. What will happen? You know, he was on the ropes and now he's back, and you know, <laughs> all of this is just self referential um, press. Twitter, get everybody getting themselves stirred up. Uh, it'll happen or it won't. I suspect it will happen. Um, and I suspect there will be other ones besides that too. Uh, but, you know, you're going to get this kind of chorus of self-whomping that people are going to do and they're all upset and he's never going to and blah and blah and blah. So I just wanted to let you let you know about that. You'll probably have heard about it by the time you're listening to this episode. As usual, we are um, recording just after noon on uh, Wednesday afternoon, March 29th. 
Um, but you know, this, it's funny, you know, the one, the one thing that is kind of, uh, uh, fascinating here is that the one impact of this phantom indictment. And again, I'm, I suspect this is going to happen and this is just scheduling stuff. You know, it, it, it was in, it was part of Trump's drama to make, oh, it's happening this time and now it's not happening. I think this is actually just scheduling stuff and there's no, it, it, this, it, it doesn't matter. There's not, there's not a, there's not a back and forth here that's created by Trump and, 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 and created by the media of which we are some part. Um, but, but, uh, the one, <laughs> one of the impacts of this phantom, uh, indictment is that, it really knocked Ron DeSantis kind of for the, kind of for down for the count. You know, I mean, look, it's still 10 months away from, you know, any even primaries, right? So it's not like, you know, did anything really happen there? Uh, maybe not, but, but, but more than did in this indictment case, it, it has been, it, one of the things we're going to talk about today is, you know, the, the hundred percent absolute certainty among among reporters that Ron DeSantis is toast and done and an object of ridicule who small children see on the street and, and, uh, you know, say shame, shame and he, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, but the, the perception that these indictments were coming, and I suspect that's part of what Trump was doing. Although in general, I tend to think that Trump's uh, drama and shenanigans are much more intuitive than theorized, for lack of a better word. Right? I don't think he he. I don't. I don't think there's a lot of uh, strategy behind it. Strategy is kind of in, intuitive, instinctive for him. But one of the things that it has reminded us of, and that's good because people, I don't think, were paying attention to that. That. If someone like Trump is being faced by multiple felony indictments in in multiple jurisdictions, it is going to be pretty hard to run as the successor to Trump when Trump is running as the successor to Trump, right? I mean, it, this would be so much easier for, for all of these people if Trump were gone, if he were dead, if he were in jail, if he just didn't want to run, saying like, hey, wasn't Trump awesome? And now I'm going to be an even better version of Trump. But, and that's what DeSantis is trying to do. But Trump is still running to be Trump. And when consider, you know, it will be, if, you, if it were a normal politician, it might be different. But Trump's whole thing, not so much in 2016, 2016 was different. But really starting in January, February of 2017, Trump's whole shtick is the deep state is against me. And the deep state is trying to destroy me. And they're trying to destroy me because they want to destroy you. So he's got a whole mythology to kind of package this into. And what we saw in that, in that, you know, the week of the phantom indictment was that for all the stuff we heard after the 2022 midterm election about how the party was moving on for Trump, moving, you know, moving on from Trump. He'd lost his, he'd lost his magic. People were ready for this, all the, all that kind of stuff, man, everyone lined up behind him. 
and maybe you can say, well, you know, they're kind of like, well, it's 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 the deep state and it's uh, out of control prosecutors and all, you know, all that kind of stuff that doesn't necessarily mean that they support him uh, over Ron DeSantis. But all of us as humans, we have a hard time with cognitive dissonance. And if you are saying it is me and Trump in the foxhole, it's Trump or nothing. I'm going to sort of, you know, put my put my life on the line for Trump, my political life on the you, you can't do that. And I'll say, well, but, you know, I think I think I'd rather go with DeSantis as the nominee. That's that's just not going to happen. So we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, um, uh, you know, Trump's uh, Waco, uh, Waco far right. Uh, celebration jamboree that he held uh the 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 uh precipitous fall and and political demise of ron desantis so-called and then also the fact that you've got uh trump's trump's uh freedom caucus buddies and really the, the, everybody in the house uh republicans in the house saying please pay attention to us we took the hostage and we we're threatening to kill the hostage and no one is talking to us what are you going to do about the hostage what, what if we kill the hostage? What are you going to do about it? No one will pay attention. And this is, it's, 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 it's such a funny thing because, you know, uh, th- this is setting aside what you, listener, thought was the election within the Obama administration, of which, of course, Joe Biden was a central figure. And many of the people who work in the Biden administration also worked in, in, in the Obama administration. This was a central learning event, something that those people all look back on and say, we screwed the fuck up. You know, because if you go back to 2011, the first time you did this, this debt ceiling hostage thing, President Obama was saying, you know, we're going to sit down and have a negotiation. We're going to, they're threatening to, to uh, run the country into default and we're going to make sense. We're going to sit down and, and negotiate over that. And, and then they kind of did something similar again a couple years later, not, not quite to the same extent. And then all those people in the, in the Obama administration were looking back on that and saying, wow, we really, that was stupid. And uh, there's been this mantra, we're not going to do that again. And uh, Joe Biden said, you know, look, we're not going to negotiate over that. And he has, you know, it's not over. And uh, people in political science would say everything is, you know, not negotiating is negotiating. But he's kind of, he's walked the walk. And that's what we're seeing. That's That's the reaction here. Because he's not only is he not negotiating, he's not even like acknowledging them. They're kind of saying, "Hey, we're 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 gonna we're gonna we're not gonna pass the debt ceiling," and he's just like, "Yeah, you are. Talk to you later," you know. <laughs> and so they're uh, they're out there, kind of saying, "This is this is not reasonable. We took the hostage. So where are the hostage negotiators? What's going on? Where's the SWAT team? What are, what are we what are we doing here?" So we're going to talk about all those things. Uh, me and my co-host Kate Riga, and Kate's gonna. You know, Kate is the one who who goes up to Capitol Hill and knows about all these people and all of that and can give us some insight on all of that. Uh, but before we do that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Making cold brew doesn't have to be complicated. You can do it without a French press, without a grinder, a scale, any of that stuff that 
you know, kind of sounds like you're a drug dealer or something like that. You don't even need a measuring spoon, even more like a drug dealer. Or, or a, I'm getting I'm getting too deep into my Rolling Stones uh, reading in Arcana. Uh, any case, uh, a bean bag bundle from Grady's gives you exactly what you need to make perfect iced tea. Just drop your bean bags in a pitcher, add water, and sleep on it. Twelve hours later, you'll have twelve glasses of New Orleans style cold brew ready to enjoy all week for less than a dollar a glass. It's a no brainer. The only decision you'll have to make is original, French vanilla, or decaf. I'd say original, to be honest with you. Uh, Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate Riga, where are we? What are we talking about? I guess we'll just, uh, we'll start by kind of putting a pin in the the ghost indictment stuff here because, you know, when this the schedule that has now been kind of like upset and disturbed is like nothing but Trump saying I'm getting arrested on Tuesday. And, you know, I think rightly people being like, well, he's probably has, you know, not just talking completely out of his butt here. Like there must be some reason, um, which, the, <laughs> which I guess there wasn't. But, you know, I saw someone say, well, like Trump got what he wanted. You know, now they're afraid to hand down the indictment kind of thing. And it's like that. Silly, right? Like all we had had to kind of bolster his claim are various indications that, you know, the prosecutor wants to indict. That That's basically what we had. Um, and I think, you know, you have both. So it's Trump. Nothing. We have no indication that anything that Trump has done has at all disturbed the schedule that this was going to operate on. Um, you know, I guess this hiatus was reportedly like pre-planned. Um, we know from experience that grand juries usually don't meet every day that they're scheduled to, and that there are a lot of like schedule interruptions that delay stuff. Blah blah blah. And then also from like the political side, I think our colleague John Light made a good point, which is. You know, even if, say, Trump did influence this and, and push back the indictment, like from a political vantage point, that is not particularly a bad thing, because I think a lot of people feel like if they had their druthers, this is not the indictment you would choose to come down first, just because this, you know, we've talked about this before. This one is kind of like small potatoes. You know, it's a it's an old story. I mean, it's definitely, you know, there's like evidence of criminality and that is a big deal. But in terms of like hush money payments that he kind of incorrectly, uh, you know, wrote off as a campaign expenditure versus undermining an election, one of those looms a little a little larger than the other, right? Um, So to the extent that we could play God with these indictments, I think a lot of people would say it's kind of a stronger story anyway, if you have the bigger one come down and then these more piddling ones as just kind of like a heaping up effect on the legal trouble that Trump is in. Yeah. I mean, as you say, I I, I would go beyond saying there's no evidence that Trump influenced this. I think not only is there no evidence that Trump influenced this, there is it is almost unimaginable that Trump influenced this. I just don't buy that. I just don't buy that. It's not like, like, I, I, I suspect what this is, is that it wasn't 100% a done deal. They're still working on it. They listened to a few more witnesses. Now they're up against a kind of a scheduling issue. But again, it's Trump and the sort of the Trump drama machine that has created this 
like when I said now there's a month delay, I'm, I can I can hear some of our list listeners not only in reverse podcast sound motion, but like in reverse, you know, coming back in time from the future when they're listening of saying a month. You know how long a month that is? That's a huge delay. But so <laughs> there's no rush. There's no rush. There's just no rush. Like, like literally, what is the rush? There's no rush. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't happen. But the, it, he has created this sense of, again, like it has to happen. If it doesn't happen now, he's won and all this kind of stuff. N- none of that is, none of that is the case. And, um, you know, none of that is the case. Yeah. Um, so the same time that this has been happening, there have just been like a flurry of, as you mentioned, Josh, these like DeSantis sucks pieces and like he's, his campaign is faltering, right? And donors are pausing and all this kind of stuff, which is funny because if you kind of look at what DeSantis has done of late that has caused this like massive cratering in his campaign, right? You kind of had the flub on the Ukraine thing that he had to walk back. And then you had the little dance he had to do about, you know, are you going to like pull down the garage door on the state of Florida and not let them come touch your man, you know, like this should be a sanctuary state for for Trump, where he did the answer where he was like, oh, I don't know about paying off any porn stars, blah, blah, blah. But Alvin Bragg is the son of George Soros or whatever, you know, that kind of like two-steppy thing. Mm-hmm. But what's funny about that is like, you can you can argue that the Ukraine one in, in particular, like that was a genuine gaffe, right? But The other stuff is kind of just Trump has started being mean to him in public. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoof, panic. And it's like, well, what do you think was going to happen, right? He was going to come on the stage with Trump and Trump was going to be like, I welcome a diversity of ideas and candidates. Let the best man win. Like if that's all it takes to kind of get all the Republican backers scared, what were you expecting? I think that's exactly it. I mean, look, I'll take a bit of a bow. I've been saying for a while, it's Trump's to lose, that that DeSantis's chances are are greatly overstated. And it's this funny kind of situation now that you have this big groupthink lurch in the other direction, you know, kind of towards my opinion, not, you know, not my opinion, the opinion that I happen to hold that that other other wise and sagacious people also hold. Um, but but to that point. This is what Trump does, and not only does not does does he does he do it, but it was always obvious that there are going to be all of these wickets that he that DeSantis has to navigate that are going to be really hard to navigate. That when when Trump gets into legal trouble, he's going to try to say, "Oh well, it is the deep state," but you know, you you you. Try to kind of uh, uh, pressure a porn star into sleeping with you, and this is what happens. I don't know about pressuring porn stars; not my wheelhouse. It tries to do tries to do that. That his chorus is going to say, "What the fuck, DeSantis? Are you betraying Trump? Are you part of the deep state?" I mean, that's just that's obvious that that is you know that that is going to happen, and that's going to be tough. And I think um, you know the, the the big thing here is that. DeSantis is only a balloon inflated by the pressure of professional Republicans wanting to 
get rid of Trump because they think he's a loser now. And so he is just inflated by that. But what is he actually? He is he is pretty universally known as being awkward, not very charismatic, um, not he was known when he was in the house as a bit of a dick, you know, just just kind of self-important, kind of, you know, it's sort of Ted Cruzy in a way. Not quite like that. No one's Ted Cruz. And I, I mean, not just in the sense of no one's Ted Cruz, but in the sense of like universally hated by his colleagues. But he wasn't like a glad handing, like, you know, hail fellow well met type guy when he was in the house. Um, he, I don't know how much this stuff matters, but he's at least known uh it is understood by people who follow him that his kind of inner circle is him and his wife. Um, and obviously there's probably a lot of kind of, you know, misogynistic stuff like, Oh, your wife, blah, 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 blah. But that's a pretty tight circle. Even if you, you push all of that stuff away. Uh, and, and generally speaking, you, you want a, some, some kind of outside, vo- you know, a little, some more outside voices to kind of give you, give you advice and be sounding boards and stuff like that. And, and, and I think the Ukraine thing uh, and trying to navigate the, the phantom indictment sort of showed people like, oh, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be complicated to do this, to, to, you know, to run as Trump's successor when Trump is, all, is also running as Trump's successor. And he's not a genius. He's not a political genius. He's, he's at, 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 at very least fallible and kind of he can be clumsy. And so it all kind of, uh, you know, all kind of uh, comes together. And I still think that uh, it, it's as much as it is crazy to think that anything dramatically changed in the last two or three weeks, I just... I just think he doesn't have it in him. And if I can just say one other thing, I think what you'll see now is you're going to have another anti-Trump meme stock candidate. If, if, if DeSantis really kind of falls apart, there, it's too soon for the people in the party who want to get rid of Trump to say like, okay, cool, Trump, right? They'll, 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 they'll inflate someone else. I think another piece of this is there's also just the fact that in our particularly horse racy political election coverage, a static race is not helpful to that endeavor. You can't write articles about, you know, Trump continues to be the front runner and DeSantis is also there. Or like, uh, these are the only two candidates you're serious at the moment. Like, that's not a story. But if you can get some people to say like, I I don't know, I'm I'm questioning DeSantis. Like, okay, there's a story, right? DeSantis is faltering. And then say uh, Trump gets indicted or DeSantis has some strong showing somewhere or like hits back at Trump in a way that goes viral. All of a sudden you can write a story that's like Ron DeSantis, the comeback kid, you know, you're not out of the woods quite yet, Trump. So like there is this kind of manufactured sense of movement that has to pervade this coverage because it like keeps it alive and keeps it kind of, uh, you know, just kinetic and, and capturing people's attention. So I think fundamentally, 
nothing really huge happened in the past few days that showed any kind of DeSantis Trump dynamic that you and I haven't been talking about for like months. You know, this stuff has been evident. Um, and it's I, I don't think that any of his moments, even if they weren't the most kind of polished, were really the big, oh, he's done. He, you know, like a legitimate rape moment. Like you can't come back from that kind of thing. It's just more... This is always the dynamic. It was always really evident that it was going to be hard for anyone to beat Trump, no matter the number of like Lincoln Project, never Trumpers who were like, this is the moment Republican voters will come to their senses. Like that's baloney, right? So I think that is also just a layer that's like covering over this, just the bare boring reality that you've got Trump, who's obviously... The, the favorite. You've got DeSantis, who at least right now is kind of a live ball. And then, I mean, what else are you going to write about? Like Pompeo and Nikki Haley? <laughs> it's just, it's not a very fruitful ground right now. Yeah, I would say if there is going to be another, you know, GOP Trump Slayer meme stock, it's going to be uh, Youngkin in, in Virginia. Now, I don't think he's going anywhere either in the big picture, in the final analysis. He's not going to be the nominee, but he's at least one who, who, he could plausibly be plugged into that space. He he won in Virginia. Got you know. Uh, uh, it's been a deck about a decade since uh, a, a Republican you know won for governor in 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 Virginia. He can say yeah, you know ran and won in a blue state. Um, you know he kind of it's his argument and a reasonable argument as far as it goes that he found a way to kind of pull in the Trumpers and also pull in the sort of, uh, you know, the moderate Republican suburbanites, you know, in Virginia. Uh, so I don't know who else could really be plugged in, but I think, I, I think the way to, the way to think about not just, um, not just Trump's and DeSantis's chances, but how things really are different, but also not different, is that Trump probably now has, you know, 50% support among Republicans. That is, it's a little hard to say since, you know, Trump was never at 50% when he's won last time, right? When you're, when you're president and head of the party and no one is running against you, it's pretty easy to have 90% support, right? I mean, because you're no one, no one is challenging you. Having said that, clearly, Trump is not where he was in 2020, even in 2021. But it is still really hard to unseat someone who is just routinely gets 50% support. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's really tough. And, and, you know, and you need someone who you need someone of I think, preternatural political skills to manage that central thing, which is running to be Trump's successor, while Trump is also running to be his successor. That's tough. Right. Um, yeah, no, I think that's all right. Um, so the other kind of big Trump news besides his impending potential indictment is that he gave this big speech in Waco, a little town uh, known for having a standoff between the Branch Davidians uh, and the, well, law, <laughs> the, the law, various law enforcement entities. Um, and it's one of those kind of standoffs that has become 
especially kind of right-wing lore. Uh, you know, it inspired the Oklahoma City a bomber. You know, it's just, it's one of those kind of, it's, it's in the in the camp of Ruby Ridge. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing of uh, the overbearing, violent government, you know, wouldn't let these people just like live their way of life. So they came in with guns and that, you know, that's, that's the way it's spun. Um, we don't have to get into the particulars of the Branch Davidians and what they were getting up to there. Um, but so that's where Trump held his rally. And my favorite detail of this story is that a Trump um, like spokesperson was like, totally random. Yeah, no, just like just a convenient spot in Texas for us to all meet up. Just I, I barely even knew about the history of this spot, you know, which is like pretty hilarious. Um, you know, famously, Texas is absent of major centers except for Waco. So, you know, it makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not like a, a, a town with 10, 10 people live there. It's a it's but it's not Austin. It's exactly. not Dallas. Um, and and it's it it it's funny i don't know for for younger people i mean it was a it it was a pretty shocking thing when it happened right i mean you know i, I i'm still of there's always been a question of whether when the fbi moved in with the tear gas did the tear gas you know start a fire inadvertently. Obviously, there's lots of conspiracy theories about the federal government intentionally torching the place. Um, my assumption has always been that they lit it themselves when they when they saw the FBI, you know, bashing the doors down and everything. Uh, do I do I know that for certain? No, of course not. I mean, I you know, it, it's it's certainly possible when you're using, I guess, tear gas that something can happen or, or, or whatever. But just the way that it was, you know, before it got laid over with all of all of the political stuff, it was pretty shocking when it happened, you know, because again, it was the standoff went on for, I don't know, six weeks or something, you know, a long period of time. And it had a you know, this is before we had all the Bundy stuff and, you know, before this stuff kind of became a bit familiar in a way. And it seemed a bit comical because, you know, he's this guy, he's getting biblical prophecies. They're kind of doing this kind of, you know, slow walking the FBI, you know, when I get my next prophecy, we'll come out and everything. So it had this kind of like one element that was kind of comic and before then it wasn't no, i mean obviously after the fact a lot of a lot of question and even even before the before the fact what was going on there how were kids being treated and all this kind of stuff a mix of comic stuff other people uh again before all the politics got added thinking like what the fuck like this is like there's a warrant like can these just kind of crazies just kind of you know say no to the FBI for you know forever you know let's get this let's get this resolved. So all these kind of things. And then like, I remember I came home from work one day and I flipped on CNN and you just see like this little, like smoking rubble. And that's like, that's how it ended. Right. So it was like pretty damn shocking. Um, again, whoever was at fault, all the different ins and outs and blah, 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 blah. Um, and it quickly became this core thing. And as, as you say, it was the, it was the central sort of inspiration for the for the Murrow Federal Building bombing two years later. It was done on the anniversary of it to make that point. Um, so 
for those of us who are old enough to have remembered it as a, as adults, it's pretty damn shocking that you would that you would obviously kind of choose it to kind of this is where I'm putting my cards down on this Waco stuff and tying you know bringing up bringing a bunch of January six people there and kind of you know celebrating them. It 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 it's it's certainly not like no one has paid attention to to that anniversary part of it, but it's pretty shocking even for Trump. Yeah. He opened with a montage from January 6th stuff. Um, like you say, he like, there were some kind of performances by January 6th. Like people. a, like a, they have like a choir. A choir. Yeah. That he like, per, that he's part of. And so right. you can buy it on Amazon or something. It's <laughs> yeah. really kind of, you know, unreal. Um, and then the speech was, you know, had all the greatest hits, right? Like majority of it is grievancy type stuff. Like they're only coming after me because they can't get to you because I'm standing in the way. A classic um, DeSantis story where he comes up to Trump sobbing and he's like, please, won't you endorse me? Blah, blah, blah. Like classic in that people start to hit the doors like after 30 minutes of this, like trying not to get stuck in the parking lot. You know, it had all the hallmarks, but... The thing about Trump is he's always been this blend, this blend of like comedically buffoonish and hatefully malicious. And those things always are in concert with each other. And this was so one of those things, because there's, of course, there's so much stuff you can make fun of here, like the fact that we've heard this speech 8 billion times before, you know, that he's started a musical group with the people who try to sack the Capitol. But then also you have him trying to tap into this vein of American history that is really dangerous and that a lot of, you know, radicalized people have used Waco and Oklahoma City and Ruby Ridge and all that to kind of as proof points that the government and, you know, as various law enforcement arms are, you know, dangerous and um, will crush people who have like independent thought. And the end result of that is, so that's the rationale for striking back, right? For attacking the deep state kind of thing. And that, you know, theoretically is kind of just a anti-government stance. But, you know, when you have people who carry that out, that means attacks on, you know, government workers or, uh, you know, government buildings are like, there's so many innocent people who are like tied up in this and just trying to do government jobs. And him so just blatantly embracing that movement of, you know, the three percenters and the militia people and the gun people. I mean, it's not like this is new, but I, I do think that doing it in Waco is just, a, it's brazen, right? I think one thing, you know, in, in, a, in a post recently, I mentioned that um, I think it was a post about DeSantis and, and this, you know, ongoing question of does, you know, can DeSantis dethrone Trump, all that kind of stuff. That when DeSantis tried to, you know, hedge on the phantom indictment of saying it's bad, it's, you know, I don't kind of doing it with a porn star. That's not in my wheelhouse. So I can't really just don't have any experience with that, that that whole kind of thing, that is that sort of, or, or when he was trying to kind of come after Trump saying, but character is important. George Washington had character. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Character. That kind of like attempted nuance, if you want to call it that, that does not work in the Trump era pro wrestling GOP. 
That's not how it works. How it works is kind of over the top. DeSantis came to me. He was crying. He said his wife was going to leave him because he was he was such a loser. And would I help him? All this kind of stuff. And I mentioned wrestling, and, and a few people have kind of brought this up with me. And you know, because I'm not the only one who has made this made this comparison, and a lot of other people who are much more into professional wrestling um, have have sort of articulated this point much more fully that. There really is a lot about this that Trump learned from like Vince McMahon and the world of professional wrestling. Because what you said about that, that kind of like on the, you know, when he has these things, on the one hand, it's old hat. And there's a certain element of it that, you know, when Trump is saying, and he came to me in tears, little Ron DeSantis, my little meatball, <laughs> and, you know, where, where Trump knows that we all talk about his tears shtick about how all these kind of brawny men coming to him in tears. So there's this mix of intentionally cartoonish, we're having fun here, it's all kind of a joke, and also Waco and, oh, any federal judge who who makes a ruling against me, maybe some sniper is going to take you out. Ha ha ha. It's this mix of like, it's all fake, but wait, some of it's kind of real. And, and, that makes it work for Trump. That's kind of his thing. And you're sort of every, you know, you're, you're kind of baffled by it. You're like, wait, wait, what? Like, like I, I can't, I can't disentangle the kind of we're, we're having fun here with the Trump greatest hits, you know, sir comments, you know, in tear stuff and also Waco. And also, are you really there with the Jan six people? And also you're, you're singing a song with them. That's obviously a joke, that mix of serious and joke is that's kind of what professional wrestling is. Everybody knows it's, it's fake, but it's, it's re, you know, it, it works somehow for people who are into wrestling. I mean, I, I, it's not my thing, but, uh, you know, there, there's a whole kind of, there's a whole, uh, underground of, 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 of sort of like, you know, pro wrestling intellectuals, right? <laughs> kind of the writing for uh partisan review and also like hitting the hitting the uh, the wrestling event. <laughs> um but on that you know that's Trump's magic and that is kind of one of the reasons that Ron DeSantis just he can't play in that world. He 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 can't he can do the whole like you know that Trump thing what is it you know the hands, the hand <laughs> you know the hand gesture stuff and you know how how he's aped his whole things. But that is something Trump is just good at. And because he has a sense of humor and in his own way, he has a kind of, uh, you know, kind of predatory charm to him. DeSantis doesn't have that. And he just so he, he can't really he can't he, he, he just can't play in that in that genre. Right. It's not his. So let's move on to the the newest kind of debt ceiling nonsense from Kevin McCarthy, which was basically this letter that he, you know, one of those letters that people in Washington send where they like publish it on Twitter the moment they mail it, <laughs> where it's, you know, a, a private correspondence, but here on Twitter, uh, where he does so many layers of kind of silly, unserious hypocrisy that you have to detangle it. But the thrust of it is he's saying, you, Mr. President, are being a dangerous extremist because you won't negotiate with us in order for us to raise 
the debt ceiling. And because of that, you are fiscally irresponsible and putting the American people at risk. And so the first layer of that, Josh, you talked about in the intro, right, which is that um, the White House keeps saying we're not debating stuff over the debt ceiling. We're not doing it when you have like a knife to the throat of the hostage. We'll do it when it comes time for Congress to craft a budget, which it has to do every year, but we're not doing it now. And then, of course, the second level is McCarthy slash the Republicans have yet to produce a budget that the entire caucus coalesces behind. Now, that is for some really obvious reasons, which is that it's a lot easier for Republicans to be kind of the party of like culture war slash obstruction than to try to get all these people behind any kind of like coherent, specific policy proposals. So to kind of cover himself, McCarthy put these like five bullet points in there as like an offering of what what they'll be willing to debate. And it is like clockwork, I tell you, that you have, you know, the CNN sort write up of this was like uh, McCarthy, you know, demands like stronger assurances on the debt ceiling or something ridiculous like that. And then in political playbook, it, it breaks down each of these bullet points as what what's the possibility that Democrats and Republicans will be able to come together on these things? And just to give listeners an idea of the vagueness we're talking about, this was one of the bullet points. Policies to grow our economy and keep America safe, including measures to lower energy costs, make America energy independent and secure our border from the flow of deadly fentanyl that is killing 300 Americans per day. Like, cool. Okay. I mean, I don't understand why anyone's acting like this. It's not just a messaging document. That was one sentence that had like three different clauses about energy independence, securing the border. I mean, generally in Washington, the devil tends to be in the details. So it's just, it's so profoundly silly. And this practice of giving Republicans cover on the debt ceiling when what they're doing is threatening to blow up our economy and the global economy is which is one of the proudest traditions in these like beltway outlets. And there's just never any learning from it at all. Well, I would say, you know, yes. And and the other part of this that and you see this playing out, you refer to in the in the GOP caucus is that not only can they not agree amongst themselves over what they, you know, what they support, but what they want to do. And you can see this in, you know, the Republican study committee. I, I always study committee I always get the the, the exact words wrong That's right. uh, yeah the, the the which which is most of the caucus it's something like three quarters yeah. of the caucus what they support is really unpopular they're talking about like you know they they claim it they don't want to cut social security and Medicare but what they they actually do want to cut them and cut all sorts of other things that are that are total third railed you know they're cutting border enforcement they're cutting they're cutting everything these these massive cuts those cuts are really unpopular so they want to stick behind culture war stuff as you said but they also want to say you know ending the federal debt and reducing spending and all that kind of stuff but the actual specifics they want are totally toxic politically so what so what McCarthy, you know, you've got the Freedom Caucus people who are who are happy to run right into that buzzsaw because it's not their buzzsaw. They're all in safe seats with a couple of exceptions. Oddly, uh, uh, Lauren Boebert. 
is actually one of them. She's not in a safe seat. She almost, she came within what, a, a couple hundred, a few hundred mm-hmm. votes of, of, of losing her seat. Uh, so, you know, in a perverse sense, good for her that she's, that she's, <laughs> that she's still remaining totally crazy. But they're happy to do it. He doesn't want to do it because he wants to hold on to his majority. So he wants, he's basically, he wants Joe Biden to get into a negotiation with things that he will not disclose publicly, get Joe Biden to agree not to the maximal Freedom Caucus stuff, but to a lot of very big cuts so that Republicans will be happy, that they will be happy with Kevin McCarthy. And it won't matter anymore that they'll still that they will be fairly toxic politically, or at least things that a substantial majority of the country opposes. Because if you have an agreement, Joe Biden will own it just as much as Kevin McCarthy. So it becomes neutered as a political thing because we are in a, you know, we exist in a binary political system. There are two, there are two parties and it's a zero sum between the two. Yes, you can talk about your third party and your independence and blah, 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 blah. But our actual government in the real world is, is a two party system. And that's what they want. That's how, uh, Kevin McCarthy and Republicans who think about top of the ticket, big picture things want to do it. But uh, the White House is saying, no, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to negotiate at all. And to even discuss it, you need to tell us exactly what you are for. We've told you what we're for. We're for, we're going to add some spending. We're going to do some, we're going to raise some taxes, bring in more money. We're going to, you know, lower the deficit by $80 trillion over the next decade. You know, all of these things are kind of notional, right? Um, but, you know, you, you can, if you add tax revenues, uh, you can, you can, you can do it. Uh, but they have a, they have a, they have a budget document out there. And, this is, you know, the, the the White House clearly thinks it's working for them. I mean, it's one of these things where I don't think there's any question it's working for them. It's still going to be a pretty big bummer if you have a big debt default crisis uh, sometime in late summer or, or or something like that. And and that could work for them too, right? I mean, the politics could work for them, but that still will won't you know. Uh, won't necessarily, you know, maybe people, maybe everybody will blame the Republicans for unemployment jumping up to 12% or something like that, but it'll still be 12%. And, and we, we have no idea what the immediate impact of a default would, would be. Uh, it's, it's one of these kind of perverse things. I've even seen, um, I've even seen some people arguing, and I think it, I'm not even sure this is just possible. It may even be probable. You could actually see a rush into dollars, even though that makes no sense. Right, it doesn't make sense that people are going to be trying to get into dollars and into U.S. debt if the if the U.S. is defaulting on its debt. But but you still have the fact that everybody probably thinks that it'll be resolved pretty soon, and we have you know seventy plus years of the U.S. dollar being the underpinning of the global economy, and in a period of great chaos, you're probably going to want to get back into that. Despite that making no sense, and and I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just I'm I'm more making the point that we don't know what the immediate impact of all that can be because it's 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 so um, it's so unthinkable. But if nothing else, you can just say that uh, for now they're doing what they said of just kind of telling telling the Republicans we're we're just not even going to talk about you, and you can tell it's driving them nuts, driving them absolutely nuts. 
because you know you have McCarthy now saying like Joe Biden's extreme policies of not negotiating with us, you know, when we when we're threatening to drive the country into default. They they've like the GOP has has uh, you know in in this hostage taking situation they've rebranded themselves as you know the committee to save the hostage. Right, we're no longer that's our that's our new party name. Um, but you know how it all. At, at some point, someone has to blink. And, and with the way that the GOP caucus functions, I don't know if they will blink. Even if they're losing, they can lose and still not blink. This is also a situation where for once, Democrats kind of have the pithier sell. This is like a constant asymmetrical problem that Republicans are so good at talking in sound bites at not engaging with nuance on issues. And then it's a lot easier for them to kind of say their their catchphrase and then force Democrats to try to be like, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and that's like a, a kind of a constant messaging chasm. But here, I think Democrats just really have the better message and that they it's really as as complicated as like the debt ceiling is as a concept it's easy for democrats to say let's all just raise the debt ceiling and then when you guys get yourselves together you can tell us what you want to negotiate and then we're more than happy to negotiate with you you know that's kind of it's easy it makes the the democrats sound like they're kind of being the mature parties involved you know like let's just work together first okay kev and then you tell us what you want to do and we'll see what we can get done whereas for republicans now they have to do a thing where they're saying you're being an extremist because you won't negotiate with us over issues that we have not yet identified that actually don't have anything to do with the debt ceiling, but that must be done by the debt ceiling because we're actually using that as leverage. Like that's a harder thing to kind of condense and sell in a really understandable way. And like you can go on Fox News and just say Joe Biden's being extreme and it won't let us raise the debt ceiling, but it's just as we've seen from the way that they are kind of stumbling all over on this and that the White House is like exulting in this situation, it's just not working as well. You, you know, you, you make a, a really good point, and I hadn't thought of it in quite this way in, until you until you put it that way, that ironically, it is not the criminal irresponsibility of threatening to drive the country into default that is really undoing them. It's the refusal to say what they actually want because because the part of the stupidity of this whole debt ceiling concept, only like four or five countries in the world have this, right? Again, it's like your credit card. When you swipe your card, you are both agreeing to buy and agreeing to pay. You don't, you don't, you don't sit down with a credit card company in a month and say, well, I don't know. Josh has been a little profligate and I need to I need to get my house in order so I'm not paying my bill. Like no, that's not how it works, right? But it gets conflated and that's kind of, in this nonsensical way kind of like we're in a lot of debt so we can't raise the debt ceiling cuz that's more debt. Well, not, not like not really, but that's this kind of twisted thing that no one that 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 no one really understands so they can kind of sort of make that work kind of maybe kind of sort of but by not saying what they what they even support that makes them sound silly 
Mm-hmm. And people can understand silly. If you were saying kind of like, you know, uh, (laughs) showing my age here, you know, the the commercial where the guy has the battery on his shoulder and he's like, go ahead, knock it off my shoulder. Was it William Devane? You're going to have no idea even what I'm talking about. (laughs) Anyway, this is like some commercial from the 80s or something like that. It's kind of like a Clint Eastwood kind of thing. Like, go ahead, make my day. If But if Clint's saying, but I'm not saying what, what will make my day. Or what I'll do if you do make my day. But please go ahead and make my day. And I will reserve till later discussing what I will do if you make my day and what making my day will consequence. People are like, what? Like, wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, go ahead and make my day. That has a lot of force. Because you're saying like, I don't have to explain. You know what I mean. But if you're in this whole kind of thing about you make my day, but once you make my day, you're going to be in the dark about what happened. <laughs> then you're just silly. And that's really what is kind of, that is the hook that is kind of pulling them down. Because if they, if they, and again, the reason it's not like they, they stumbled into this, they don't want to, they don't want to say because what the, because if they put that budget out and say, okay, here's what it is. We are going to, anybody who is on uh, Obamacare, you're going to lose all your subsidies and uh, we're going to dramatically you know, we're going to shut down all the federal parks. We're going to dramatically cut back on immigration, everything. I mean, if you, if, you, if you leave the big things out, you have to cut everything tremendously. So now they're just kind of stuck. And that, that just makes them, that makes them sound silly. And, and perversely, perversely, and this has always been a kind of a key thing in our politics. Maybe it's, maybe it's in everybody, in every country's politics, but this is the country that I that I have some insight into how, into how its politics works. Um, being silly is much more damaging than being evil because it's weird and it's mockable. Whereas evil, people say, well, he's evil. That's hardcore. <laughs> Got to respect that, right? It's, 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 it's this weird kind of perverse thing about our politics, but, but that's what it is. Yeah. So to wrap up on this kind of a grim note, but uh, yet again, there was another school shooting on Monday. Um, It was a a private Christian school. There were three children dead, uh, three adults, and then also the shooter. And in the aftermath of the shooting, you know, reporters asked Dick Durbin, who you, Josh, have brought up a lot about, okay, what, you know, what next? Like, what are, what's going to be the response? Which, you know, we've gotten to this point in American life where you pretty much know that no additional amount of dead children is going to move the needle on this. But he said, I was so struck. He said that, you know, something kind of mumbling in the in the direction of, you know, I want to do background checks, but I'm a realist, you know, like when it gets to the Senate floor, that's, yeah, that's going to be a problem, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just like, oh, my God, you know, even... Like, that's correct. No gun legislation is going to pass Congress right now. But it's just this like profoundly weird, broken response to be like, nah, you know what, between the filibuster and the Republicans, nah, it's it's not even worth the effort, right? It's not even worth but did trying. He even, did he even say the filibuster and the Republicans? No, that's exactly. That's the point. Right, that's, exactly. Yeah, I'm just saying yeah. he is just, he got to the point of like, nah. That seems like it's not going to work. And that's the response you give. I mean, at the very, very least, you have to say, I think this is an atrocity and I'm heartbroken and I'm furious and we are going to put a bill up and Republicans are going to block it like they always do. And that's more blood on their hands. But this impassioned, weak or dispassionate, weak kind of like 
that's you know, that's the reality, ladies and gents. You know, it's not worth our time. We have other priorities. Like while you know, children-sized coffins are being built is just, I find it so weird and self-defeating. And then, you know, then of course you have uh, Cornyn, a, a Republican, and saying, you know, oh, I think we, we've gone as far as we're going to go on this. And then Tim Burchett, a, a House Republican, this clip like caught fire, but he said, I, he said, you know, oh, we don't worry about that with our daughter because she's homeschooled, <laughs> which, oh, my God. And then he and he opened by saying, yeah, we're not going to fix this. Isn't, which, he, isn't he from the district I, or like to, or at least from uh, Tennessee. The, the Tennessee? Yeah. I, he's at least if he's not if it's not his district, he's like adjoining that district. So it's right. not like he's from another part of the country. It's like his, you know, his people. At least he's being honest that he's like, my daughter isn't in direct harm, so I'm not going to worry about it. Other people's kids don't trouble me. But it's the kind of thing where it's hard to feel anything but just utter and all-consuming cynicism on this topic. Like, I'll admit, I spent all of Monday just feeling so depressed and defeated because we live in a country where this keeps happening and is going to keep happening. But just this kind of Oh my God, Dick Durbin's just mealy mouthed like shrug. I, and I know he put out a video later saying this is unacceptable. So I guess there was some cleanup being done. But still, I mean, it just, it is emblematic sometimes of the democratic response to things that you're just like, just show some anger, show some fight at the very least. You know, this is kind of like when we were talking about Dobbs and Elizabeth Warren went out and met all the protesters in front of the Supreme Court building and gave a speech where she got really, really, you know, angry and, and emotional. And it's like, it's that's just the very least that you can do in these situations. Well, I think, you know, to me, that's a, it's a couple things in my mind. One is just Senate brain. Yeah. You know, th that from Dick Durbin's perspective, he's the deputy leader. One of his things is you know, the Senate's business and the Senate is, you know, there's various non-controversial pieces of legislation they're, they're pushing through. They're going to have to come up with a budget. They're trying to, um, uh, you know, move through uh, judicial nominations, all of which are real and important. And it, and if you, if your reality is just the Senate, you're probably thinking like, look, obviously nothing we do is going to go anywhere. That would just, uh, you know, slightly delay this judicial nomination or whatever like that or this other thing. So it's not going to happen and it's too bad. But what's the point? But but when you say it just can't happen, there's nothing we can do. People look at that and say, wow, what world are you living in? Like or, or like what? What's wrong with our system of government if that's if if that's the case, if you're sort of notionally on the side of, you know, tightening rules about gun and you're just like, oh, I can't do anything. You at least have to say, you know, President Biden did a better job of this where he basically said, hey, I've maxed out all I can do with executive executive orders. And the issue is the Congress and Republicans in Congress. And they don't they don't care. And I've done everything I can. This is this is an example of there is something reflexive in our public culture that it is somehow bad and tawdry to make points political. Now, there are certain meanings of that phrase where that might be true, but it is actually civically wrong not to make the point of what is actually happening. Republicans, because of the filibuster, uh, they 
control on this. Republicans have said absolutely nothing on gun control. I guess they had that minor bill they passed, uh, you know, for the people who got it passed. Great. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not diminishing their achievement, but it's, it is a relatively minor, uh, change, but you, you owe it to people. You more than owe it to people. You have to be clear with people where the problems are and what is causing the problems because otherwise you're just lying to them. It's not like, oh, that's all we can do. Oh, it's so sad. The problem is that Republicans have a lot of political power and they are saying, we will not do anything. So if you're upset, what you need to do is reduce Republicans' political power. That, that's, 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 that's the reality. And, and, and doing this kind of like sad sack, wah, 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 that's lying to people. It's, it's, not, it's not even a matter of like, well, you didn't, you didn't go political. You, know, you didn't make it a political issue. It is a political issue. The issue is Republicans refuse to do anything on guns, and Republicans have enough power that they can just veto anything. And that is, you know, we are kind of at a standstill, but you need to show people, like, why are we at a standstill? Well, we're at a standstill because there is this metal door in front of us with a big lock on it and a, a you know, a, a, a 10 locks and a, you know, a, 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 a wood plank and all this kind of stuff, and we can't get through the door. And the door is the Republican Party and its political power. So if you're upset, you at least need to show people what the problem is, not just not just this like vague, well, we've done everything we can. It's 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 that's that's it is worth understanding that they have their world of scheduling and stuff like that, and that is real to them. But they they don't or should not live in a hermetically sealed bubble. They run for office. They're in the politics business. They're allowed to watch TV, right? There's no real excuse that 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 they are so oblivious or so indifferent to these to these realities. They shouldn't be, but they they are, and that's a lot of um, a lot of how that functions. And it shouldn't function that way. And people who have power like that. Uh, really owe it to everyone not to act, not to act that way, not to talk that way, not to lie to people that way. It reminds me of um, when Cinema's office got so bad at me because I tweeted her response to, I mean, who can even remember at this point, but whatever school shooting had happened at this time. Um, and I, I just juxtaposed what she said with what Mark Kelly said. And you know, Mark Elliott said, it's fucking nuts to do nothing, you know? And she said something like, oh, you know, we don't need DC solutions to this problem, talking about the filibuster. And they went bananas at me and they were like, you need to put in the rest of her statement, which was her, you know, her saying that she's deeply saddened and, you know, wants to do something about gun violence kind of thing. And it's so funny because my response was just what you're saying. I mean, like, okay, her feeling sad that children are shot is not news or interesting. It's the assumption, right? And that matters a whole lot less to what kind of legislation can be passed than whether or not she will allow, at the very least, a filibuster carve out to pass some kind of significant gun legislation, right? Because in what came of that is the the bill you mentioned, and it's funny because I went back to look at its details when I was uh, when I was writing about this the other day, and it's just. It's small, you know, it really is like it, both the most 
uh, powerful gun reform that has passed in years and totally just nibbling around the edges, you know, and this all happened too. The Washington Post just did this series like on the AR-15 and one of the pieces they got permission from the victim's families, but of a Parkland kid and a Sandy Hook kid. And they use like the autopsy photos and report to recreate what the bullets did to these children's bodies. I mean, and it's rough. Like it is so, so hard to read, you know, but then just having this visceral, emotional angering thing juxtaposed with this, you know, with Durbin's mealy mouthness and cinema being like, well, the filibuster is really just a DC problem. It just like makes you want to like pull your hair out, you know, because it's like, it's it's what you said. It's at the very, very least here, the politics and the reality are the same. So you should be screaming from the rooftops that Republicans are enabling this to happen. This most visceral, heinous crime, they are enabling it and making sure that it will continue to happen. And that's why, you know, you, the voter, need to elect more Democratic senators or and get the House back. And, you know, obviously that's a tall order, but at least it's channeling people's emotions somewhere instead of just meeting like this repeated grief with, you know, that's that unfortunately is the way it is and the way it's always going to be. So you should just feel probably pretty defeated by this, which incidentally is exactly how, you know, the gun companies and the gun lobbies and their Republican supporters want you to feel in this moment. Yeah, no, that's that is exactly it. And um, the political system gets clogged when people don't understand the mechanics of why things happen and why things happen the way they the way they do. Um, because if if you say, look, Republicans are dead set against any changes and we know that in this country, it's it's you know it's basically a fifty fifty country right now, more or less. You know, kind of fiddles back and forth ar- around that sort of dead even stalemate space. Um, and it will only change if Republic if if Democrats have you know substantial majorities, and or Republicans start changing their views or electing people who don't have that. And I think if you're the average person, you look at that and say, okay, well, <laughs> it, it's a tall order, right? <laughs> that, yeah, I, I see why it's tough. I see where the where the problem is. But you know, Democrats take back the House. Democrats get you know two or three uh, uh, seat majority in the Senate, as we talked about last year with uh, abortion policy. It's sixty votes until it isn't. It's sixty votes until you have fifty. You know, 50 with the vice president, 51 votes in the Senate to change the rules that make it 60. So it's really 50. You need 50 people who are willing to vote on a majority basis for any of these things. So it's actually not Herculean, right? It's not something like, well, just give Democrats a 70 seat majority (laughs) in the Senate and we'll get it all wrapped up or even 60. I mean, again, Democrats had two successive wave elections in 2006 and 2008, and they got to 60 like briefly. And Republicans did everything they could to kind of bottle Al Franken up in Minnesota for about six months. So he didn't get seated until like the middle of 2009. And then Ted Kennedy's seat was lost. So it was, 
you know, the whole thing was for like six months or something like that. Um, that is the is the sort of historical accident that allowed Obamacare to be passed. But again, it's 60 votes until 50 or 51 decide it's not 60 votes. It's not impossible, but that's what it will take. Um, and it it may take, uh, you know, because there's a lot of there's a lot of people in line for 51 votes. You, you've got you've got people who care about abortion rights who are in line for it. Uh, you've got 20 other issues, right, of people who issues that are really important. So so guns may not even be first on the list. Right. Uh, but that's what it will take. And the one thing you just get you know, I am flogging a dead horse here. But the one thing you can't do is just tell people, well, it just can't happen because this, because that, because then it's just people people get demoralized and they start checking out of politics more generally. And that is something that is both bad if you if you think these issues are important. It's also dangerous just in a more general sense, because, you know, you need people civically involved and all that, all that good stuff. And I know that, uh, Kate, you've been you've been writing about uh, as other people have, you know, uh, Michigan, which is kind of becoming the 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 example case. You know, you get everybody kind of focused, say, hey, all these things that we think are super important, um, give us majorities and we'll do those things. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it so happens. I, I, I don't. Uh, what is it that they're I think they have a a gun legislation issue, but it's pretty it's 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 relatively, um, you know, they're not banning guns. You know, Republicans are saying they're banning guns. It's but they they've they've they're 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 uh, um, you know they're getting rid of right to work. They're passing this sort of you know abortion legislation, all this kind of stuff. And that's clearly what you need at the at the federal level mm-hmm. to kind of say all these things that you're kind of so sick of that never gonna you know never gonna change. Do this, that, and the other. You know, pass and and we'll do them. And that's 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 good. And and that really is that is why what is so bad about the filibuster is not that it makes makes it the case that Democrats can't have nice things. It makes it the case that the the band connecting political activity to political change gets severed. Mm-hmm. And that is really destructive because people say, wait a second, you got you got the president, you got the House, you got the Senate. So and you were gonna do this, what happened? Like you must be frauds. Right. It, that and it, 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 it builds that kind of cynicism. And, uh, you know, people say people on the on the left are not like the left. You know, people, Democrats say, well, if we get rid of the filibuster, they're going to come in and they're going to do this, that and the other. Well, that would suck. But that's that's politics. And, and if they do all the terrible things, you come back two years later and you run against them. And again, you have to have the you have to have the the integuments that connect your vote and your results to something happening. And if it, that, when that's broken, everything breaks down. Anyway, we are, uh, we're over our time. We've given you an extra, an extra helping of, of the awesomeness we, we bring you every week on the Josh Marshall podcast, but I think we've covered it, right? We've got, we got all of our stuff in. Okay. Yep. Uh, let me remind you, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And I think that is, uh, that's it for us this week. All right. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, T. 
TPM reporter Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. Listen.